Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological, the podcast that covers the breadth of human fandom. My name is Nick G, and today we're going to be talking about the Kaiser Chief's favorite anime, Ruby. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. This will be the day we've waited for. This will be the day we open up the door. And Nick Z. Over 100 episodes into the show, I feel like I need to clarify something. A lot of people are probably wondering how to spell Z. Talking about Ruby finally made it clear to me it's spelled Z-H. Whoa. Who's on your team, Z? Myself and uh, an unknown color that starts with H. I tried to think of a team name for the three of us. The thing I came up with was Zygote. I'm going to start us off with a couple of fandom facts. I'm a little light this week, but straight from Wikipedia, in case you're listening to this episode and have no idea what Ruby, spelled R-W-B-Y, and pronounced Ruby, is about, um, it is an American anime-style web series and media franchise created by Monty Ohm for Rooster Teeth. The show is set in the fictional world of Remnant, where young people train to become warriors called Huntsmen and Huntresses to protect their world from monsters called Grimm. The name Ruby is derived from the four characters' forenames, Ruby, Weiss, Blake, and Yang, as well as their associated theme colors, red, white, black, and yellow. Following several promotional trailers, the first episode was screened at the Rooster Teeth Convention event, RTX, and then released on their website in July 2013, which means Ruby has been going on for almost six years at this point. Ooh. Dang. I managed to find a fan survey, which was surprisingly recent. It was somewhere in the last year, and it gives us some idea of the demographics of the fandom. Uh, but admittedly, this came from R. Ruby from a fan survey with just over 700 respondents. Um, 86% of the respondents identified as male, and a non-zero percentage identified as assholes. <laughs> was there any indication what the question was? Like, was it was it yes or no? Uh, it was an option where they had a write-in ballot. So there were, like, legitimate entries that were, say, agender or gender fluid. And then there were people that wrote, like, Panzer Tank and Apache uh, Helicopter and Mossad. So 86% were identified as male. Approximately 10% identified as female. Again, most of the time we get data from Reddit. It tends to be more male skewed. I think in this case it's very skewed compared to normal. Sounds like it. But it may be in line with um, with Rooster Teeth's general demographic. Almost 86% are under the age of 24 years old. Oof. <laughs> 67% between the ages of 18 and 24. Uh, and if we do some math, it's reasonable to assume that that means folks probably started watching between the ages of 13 and 19 because the show came out five to six years ago. Makes sense. On YouTube. The young person's medium. And uh, this was interesting to me just as a, as a little tidbit. Just over half, uh, that is 55%, watch Rooster Teeth's podcast. Uh, and that's all I have this week for Fandom Facts. So, my, my experience uh, with Ruby was hearing that there's a thing that exists called Ruby. And I was like, man, that's not how you spell that word. <laughs> and I didn't uh, interact with it anymore until we did it for this episode <laughs> really like you'd, you'd never seen people at cons with like a giant scythe oh i had i didn't know they were from ruby oh okay. i didn't know like what what it looked like or or what it was i just know it was the name of something um and i think i think occasionally i would mix it up with flcl i had another four letter yeah so the, so i i came into this pretty much 
cold, and it was, uh, it was an interesting thing to look into, uh, not knowing anything about it before. We'll get more into that. This was a, a weird thing for me because there was a point in time where I was actively following Ruby. I had heard about it and got drawn in by like the aesthetic of it. It is a very anime style aesthetic. And it probably was like the opening theme to the first season or the second season that like started to get me in. And but the problem is when I was watching Ruby and I had to like reference the episode list to try to figure out what was going on in my life at the time. <laughs> when I was watching Ruby, it was uh, work. It was in the middle of volume two. Uh, I caught up pretty rapidly. And then I remember this period where I was waiting and waiting and waiting for the episodes to be released because they kind of were uh, following kind of an erratic schedule or I remember it that way but it makes it hard for me to remember anything about what the show was like because at the time that was like the beginning of a gigantic change in my life where I was going from being in a long-term relationship to not being in one so I I don't remember a lot of the details but I remember really enjoying it Um, I remember being fairly light-hearted based on some research that may not be true as much and uh, I remember there being a lot of different characters that you can kind of like get attached to and be interested in regardless of the the level of depth or the amount of character arc that's displayed. I remember there being a lot of mysteries that I wanted to see the end of, but obviously I didn't follow through on that. I was in a really uh, similar boat to G's, except that I, I remember seeing cosplayers at various conventions cosplaying Ruby characters and thinking or maybe even saying out loud. Were they supposed to be people telling me, oh, that's Ruby, me being like, okay, sure, and just kind of forgetting about it. <laughs> but before I, I did the research for this episode, I also had no idea that Rooster Teeth was as big as they are. I only realized that when it was maybe last year, there was a site that I remember being, I remember quite well, all the way back to my university days, uh, Screw Attack. Yeah. Yeah. And it's no longer its own thing. It, it got subsumed into. Rooster Teeth, and uh, I think since even since that, it has been shut down. Like, there's there's no longer a screw attack. <laughs> I did know that Rooster Teeth was a thing, and I knew that Rooster Teeth did Red versus Blue, but I, I didn't until we did this. I didn't know that they were also responsible for Ruby. I guess if you are not part of that community, it's kind of like a weird take. And this is something that I found when I was was wrapping up some of the research. There was this article that I was reading, and it was. One of the things that I wondered coming into this episode was, who are the fans of Ruby? Like, are they men? Are they women? Are they young? Are they old? Um, the answer is is usually young people and usually dudes. And one thing that I discovered reading this article was that Rooster Teeth's background is unsurprisingly that. It's mostly shows that target folks like, you know, teenager, maybe up to their 30s, um, you know, largely targeted at male gamers. And there was actually this this funny quote that's like, well, obviously we're, we're targeted at women because, you know, all of us are like in our 30s, uh, at least 30 pounds overweight, <laughs> like kind of trying to poke fun at their, their demographic kind of thing. And I guess when they came out with Ruby, it's very interesting because that's like a hyper focused area of marketing, right? Like 18 to, well, it's also really saturated, like dudes who play games. And Ruby is not like that. No. In in one of the the notes you'd made, T, in the general notes, one of the one of the characteristics you had specified for this demographic of Rooster Teeth was that they played Xbox, and I mean that's probably like a generalization, of course, but if it wasn't for that, 
I would say yes, but the Tales of series. Because I, I only watched one episode of Ruby, but what little bits of lore I'd read elsewhere and that sort of thing and doing the research really reminded me of a lot of the stories in Tales games where there are some sort of ancient power that's tapped into to make civilization uh, successful and, and thriving. But then there's some sort of problem or complication with that power and and, uh, and plot happens. I didn't want to put this in my uh, in first impressions because I wanted to kind of open this up for discussion a bit. But I watched the first episode and what it reminded me of two different things. Okay. The first thing it reminded me of is South Park. I have questions about that, but you can continue. In in that the animation isn't trying to pretend it's something that it's not. Specifically, Ruby's like eats eats cookies and then she just like puts them up to their mouth and they disappear. Yeah. And like yeah. South Park does stuff like that all the time. Like they're they're <laughs> they embrace what the uh, the limitations of their animation. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's like the style they're going for. And also the the banter and like it sort of has the sheen of anime on it. And South Park doesn't, but it has a sheen of anime on it, but it's all, it's American writing and American voices. Uh, so that is obviously like South Park. The second thing it reminds me of is Stranger Things. Really? I have more questions now. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and this may feed into our, is, is Ruby an anime uh, kerfuffle? <clears throat> is Stranger Things a Stephen King, a Stephen King story? No. Ooh. <laughs> all right. Cut that off right away. Okay. It's, it's not based on any Stephen King story, but in all the elements that it, the story elements, the visual elements that it borrows, it, it mirrors that sort of aesthetic and atmosphere and idea very much. And Ruby struck me as like, you know, you take in, take in RPGs, you take in fighting games, you take an anime and throw it in a blender <laughs> and, and ship it via America. <laughs> and then that's Ruby. Ship it via Japan. And that's tales of, or I mean, what? <laughs> Z, you had your chance when we did the Tales of episode. <laughs> the only reason I agreed to this is to make it a backdoor Tales of episode part two. I can kind of see your comments about it, about it being like South Park. And, I, and it's funny because I was watching a video today talking about uh, Terry Gilliam and his style of uh, Terry Gilliam of Monty Python talking his style of animation. Uh, normally, uh, notably, it being cutouts and the limitations mm-hmm. of that. And yes. I in preparation for this, went back and watched a little bit of the first episode. And I knew that the animation quality is not great. That's partly a limitation of, of uh, my understanding of the team at the time, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I think it said there were 15 animators who worked in an office next to a bathroom. <laughs> so they would have to do everything serially. They would have to like do all the recording and then all the editing and then all the, the um, voiceover, whatever. And when they were doing the voiceover work, they would have to wait until someone was done using the bathroom so that they didn't record the flushes. Yeah. <laughs> but like you, you have this small team that's working like really hard to produce this, you know, for a, like when you think about the number of people that go into something like a, like a big cinematic blockbuster, or even like a, and just a regular animated series, that's a lot of people. And to do something with 15 people putting in crazy hours is mind blowing. Well, even, even when you hear about, uh, individual animators on YouTube taking hours and hours and hours and hours just to make like a three minute video. I think that that also gives some perspective to what a 15 person team could do. Yes. And I, I think, and this is a problem with not being an expert on the topics that we talk about is that I imagine that one of the reasons for going into an anime kind of aesthetic is that 
from what we know of the history of anime and by we, I mean, literally the three of us, uh, it takes a number of different shortcuts because when it started, uh, certain aspects of animation were expensive. They still are. Animation is still expensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so there were like, uh, some things that were cultural and other things that were to save on animation. And like you were saying about the cookie, I definitely remember there were other things where, Oh, uh, a character like, you know, does the kind of bashful response and then like qu- quickly darts off screen, mm-hmm. which like as, as an anime aesthetic is a trope, but as an animation trick, it lets you avoid animating a whole like walk cycle off screen. Yeah, that's true. And because it's like you associate it with anime and then it feels like a choice and not uh, a budgetary measure. Right. It feels very, pr- it feels like it's on purpose and not just, Oh, thank God we don't have to animate this person walking away. Yeah. Like you've, you've got these 3d models and for some reason you decide like, let's zoom in on the eyes and like have them talk and not animate the mouths. And it's like, sure, you can do that. And that's a choice, but it's also like, you've already got the 3d stuff in a world. You could put the camera anywhere. It's not like animation in that sense. <laughs> no, you don't have to have traditional, uh, you know, traditional shots. But I think the important thing to determine is, is it anime? I mean, that is, that is the only thing that matters when it comes to Ruby. I already <laughs> regret that I decided that was something worth discussing. I think it's an interesting topic. Not that I, like, I personally, like, what, like whatever, just watch it. Like, who, who gives a crap? But, like, the fact that people think it's important, I find interesting. And this was part of the reason that I brought it up. It's important enough that if you go to the Wikipedia page for Ruby, there is a header that says response to marketing as anime. And mm-hmm. I dug into it a little further as well. And Monty Ohm, the like lead animator of the show, very much wanted it to be categorized as anime. And then Z found this wonderful thread, Ruby is not anime, <laughs> <laughs> which was interestingly to me in, the, in that top comment, it says, you know, according to the notice on the top of r slash anime, Ruby is not an anime, to which <laughs> my immediate mental thought was, okay, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so a bunch of people on the internet don't think it's anime. <laughs> All right. But that that's just at a very surface level. There is, as Z found by the looks of it, much more in-depth discussions that could be had about, is this anime or not? Very much so. One of the things that really surprised me that I had no idea about, but which makes perfect sense, is that uh, in North America, anime, the term, seems to be used a lot differently than it is in Japan. In Japan, anime is just like a short, punchy way to say animation, and it's just a catch-all for anything animated. If you asked somebody in Japan, is The Simpsons anime? They would say, yes, The Simpsons is an anime, because it's animated. So they say instead of cartoon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In North America, though, if you said, if you said hey, The Simpsons, it's an anime, people would just think you're crazy and dox you or whatever, because it's the internet. So... That was like that really turned things upside down for me as somebody who a little little uh, knee, knee jerk, I, I gotta admit, little shooting from the hip would say it's not anime. But pulling back from that a little bit, a little bit, I can see where people are coming from saying that it is. Uh, the only reason I, I would still struggle to agree is that it seems like the North American Western use of the term anime is just really inadequate. And doesn't quite work because one of the one of the more compelling arguments that I found for Boy for saying that Ruby is not anime 
is that outside of Japan, the term anime is used for specifically, usually, Japanese animation. And so to apply it to something that made in the West kind of robs the term of any sort of cultural significance it might have had as, uh, as a term to signify something Japanese-made, Japanese-influenced. Is it Japanese? No. Does it look like Japanese animation and is influenced by Japanese animation? Yes. And I feel like this is not the first time I've used this argument, but it fits here. Is Pearl Jam classic rock? No. Do people who listen to classic rock listen to Pearl Jam? Yes. <laughs> Hence, it is played on classic rock radio. You can say, okay, it's, it's not made in Japan. You can say that it has influences from but isn't influenced by Japan. And my argument to that is, who cares? Like, like, like you're saying, G, because the fact is, it was very definitively made with that intent. The creator mm-hmm. had that intent. I know that the author is dead. Literally. Oh, yes. Ooh, that's, that's the first time that's come up in a little while. Um, I meant, like, the idea of, like, authorial intent. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. Doesn't, doesn't matter. But, like, the, the author intended that. It's very much inspired by and kind of a love letter to <laughs> Japan. And so if you want to call it anime-inspired because that makes you sleep better at night, fine. To me, what threw another complication into the works was um, I found, admittedly, on Wikipedia, so many grains of salt, Monty Um himself didn't necessarily recognize himself as an American, but as Cambodian, Vietnamese, Chinese, and Japanese. That in itself, if you wanted to bring nationality into it, which I think, and this is why I think anime is an inadequate term, the way that, that the West uses it, like nationality doesn't seem to matter anymore because your influences aren't limited to your nation, province, state, city, neighborhood, or anything like that, because the internet just lets you see anything from anywhere if you so desire. And so you can be influenced from anywhere these days. Because the creator doesn't necessarily regard themselves as, or didn't necessarily regard themselves as American, even though it was made in American soil, quotes, does that even make it American? Like, you usually get into identity then, the identity of the creator, and maybe the, the author is dead, but that identity, man, such a hot topic. Everyone's, everyone's favorite uh, Scottish slash American slash Canadian <laughs> invention, the telephone. Yeah. <laughs> or basketball. Oh, boy. Ooh. And Monty Ohm actually had a quote about this in an interview with him. And it's, it goes like this, which is, some believe, just like Scotch needs to be made in Scotland, an American company can't make anime. I think that's a narrow way of seeing it. Anime is an art form. And to say only one country can make this art is wrong. Well, what about things like, I know it's different because it's food rather than art. But what about things like champagne or feta cheese that can only properly have those names if they're from specific areas in France and Greece, respectively? Find me people who give a crap. Gourmands, my friend. The only time that I refer to champagne as sparkling white wine is when I'm quoting Wayne's World. (laughs) Which, as it turns out, is probably every time champagne comes up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the point is, okay. I mean, the the first question to ask is, is it Japanimation? (laughs) The answer is probably not. But, like, obviously we needed to get rid of that term because it was silly. Yeah. Or... Or cartoon from Japan or, you know, Japanese animated, whatever. It's a mouthful. So we, so we took, we took the, the Japanese word for, an, for animation and we're like, hey, that's a Japanese animation. But now it, 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 the word's been like cut off from its, uh, from its origin point and it's its own thing. Is Adventure Time anime. 
I would say no, but only because it doesn't seem to have an aesthetic like that. It doesn't have big eyes and small mouths. Yeah. So is anime aesthetic? I would say that. Yeah. No, I would, I would also agree that it is an aesthetic. Um, I would say that Miyazaki's films don't follow that aesthetic that much, though. It's it's quickly becomes a I know it when I see it argument. No, no, this is definitely Samson's hair. Like, how many hairs do you need to cut off of his head before he uh, loses his power? Reasons that I didn't want to open up that can of worms necessarily. Oh, I'm so glad we did. Okay, one thing that I did want to bring up is I really struggled this week to try to find out what the fandom is like. I had a speculation from the outset, which was like, oh, the reason that people really like Ruby is because uh it's like this urban fantasy and it's picking up on like the ya market and you know you've got these super powered teenagers um not knowing that much because i haven't seen things since volume two and apparently a lot has happened since then but that was kind of the angle that i was going for and i didn't get that and as i dug deeper i still didn't get any particular reason why people loved ruby and it's not like it's like oh this is a big hateable mess although i also found a lot about that i just couldn't find the part that's like People love this for this reason. It wasn't like, you know, a Captain Marvel or it wasn't like a Sailor Moon. It was just, I couldn't find that like little sparkle or collection of sparkles as to why people love it. Who would want to watch a power fantasy about about a bunch of teens with superpowers? God. (laughs) Without tipping too much of my hand, one of the things people didn't like about it is like, it doesn't feel like these characters get enough screen time like they don't get to develop in their arcs and i was like yeah okay but this works with my hero academia and like game of thrones which also have large sprawling cast of characters one of which is also a bunch of teenagers yes that's that's part of the hook you're like i you you know we talked about this in the my hero academia episode you pick your you pick your favorite (laughs) and then you 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 cherish every morsel of of uh (laughs) personality and backstory that comes out uh, you know, but if you get too much, you might not might not be so into it anymore. But yeah, look, like like I love an ensemble. An ensemble cast is great. Plus, we have all these like like uh, like color codings and categorizations and teams and stuff, which is all really cool. Um, everyone's got an aesthetic to them based on their color, and I th- I feel like the the aesthetic of the show draws a lot of people in. Not just because it looks like an anime, because it, but because it looks like itself. Like it looks like I'm watching Final Fantasy cutscenes. Like it, like it doesn't look like you know, like Dragon Ball or My Hero Academia or Sailor Moon or whatever. It looks like a video game, but has anime aesthetics. In that, it, like its art is not derivative, or it takes from so many sources that it you you you, you don't you don't see an obvious one. It would be interesting to to look at timelines and and uh, what the artists over at. Uh tales studio we're watching but i mean if you if you look at screenshots of tales of brusaria and you look at ruby uh, there's some similarities i think just just say it i wish i had time to show you 10 video games like identical to the one that you just named uh but like the, like as soon as i started watching the episode the first thing that popped into my head was ddr the the motions reminded me of the way the characters move in ddr but like but like then I'm like, oh, that also applies to like lots and lots and lots of other games, specifically fighting games, which is one thing that Monty Ohm wanted to evoke. The interesting thing about the characters that I observed from the two volumes of Ruby that I watched was that everyone has their own unique aesthetic. Like and it feels like they come from different parts of the world. Like despite the fact 
that like Ruby and Yang are like half sisters or something to that effect. They both have very different styles. Whereas uh, when I look at this like picture of the cast of Tales of Berseria, I it all looks like they're part of the same world and possibly even the same country, with the exception of Guy obviously from Japan. Maybe that is one of the things that makes, as you said, it's like that self similarity that like that aesthetic part. I found out that Monty Ohm had like a naming rule for the characters. For example, and uh, this will probably be in the show notes, it's a, a tweet and it's a picture of, of the rules and it says, okay, characters in Ruby must be a color or something that sounds like a color or something that means a color or something that makes you think of a color. And if the character is on a team, then their name has to fit in a four-letter acronym that follows those same rules. And that's actually a very, very um, Japanese anime thing. Yeah, you got your, your trunks and Bulma and briefs. Everything is in its neat little pile. Actually, I can quickly cross this over into Japanese wrestling. Because uh, in New Japan Pro Wrestling, pretty much every wrestler is in some faction. And it just makes it easier to create feuds and dynamics with, with like, I don't know, 50 or 60 wrestlers on the roster. But if everyone is aligned with some sort of team or idea or belief, and that's kind of what's going on here. You know, you have sets sets of people. So you even, even if you don't delve super deep into every character, you have a general sense of what they're about. Although, um, as far as the whole ensemble cast thing goes, I kind of got the impression that Ruby was a little bit more like Harry Potter than My Hero Academia, where there might be a lot of different characters, but because they're in different factions, just like with Harry Potter, different characters are in different houses. Like They are individual characters, but at the same time, they're sort of very easily generalized with whatever characteristics or, I don't know, I guess values that team is all about. As a result, they don't necessarily get the same kind of, I guess, coverage or seem as individual as as the characters do in MHA. Like, I can kind of see the argument that you don't get as deep as you do in MHA, but I don't think there's any, like, there's no Hogwarts or Gryffindor or whatever. The, the teams are just collections of people, and those people may or may not have any sort of similarity within them. Like, even Ruby's team, I think, has a lot of conflict in the first two volumes. It's not like, oh, we're all the good guys. It is It is still set at a school, though, for at least like the first two volumes, right? In order to, to develop their abilities. <laughs> and then they have a school festival. Classic. Classic biz. Sounds very anime. So why do people hate it? This is the strange thing to me. I could not find... People say they love the characters, and that's not specific to Ruby, and that's also not a problem, but it's, it's kind of hard to like just grasp onto that. But then there were lots of reasons why people hate it. <laughs> but they're people that keep watching the show. <laughs> were they in the Game of Thrones thread this past week? Because it's a, it's a familiar situation. I get the impression, running through some of these these threads about oh, Ruby's terrible, whatever, that underlying all of it, as much as much as it might seem totally nonsensical to hate a thing but keep watching it, I think people want to see it improve and maybe have very specific ideas on to how, as to how it should improve that may or may not line up with the, the team's own ideas. But like, because it's been going on for six years, but like pacing and even quality of animation are apparently roughly the same as they were in volume one. People want to see improvements. and They're not. I think that'd be really jarring, actually. If, if there was like a, a big gap between volume one and volume six in terms of pacing and smoothness of animation in that or 
Yeah, like I'm trying to think of a, a recent example in the world of anime, but it would be like, actually, let, let's go with that. It'd be like if you're watching, this is obviously way too far of a gap because there's many different improvements, but it'd be like watching, you know, season one of Sailor Moon is the 90s style and like season six is like Sailor Moon Crystal style. That's obviously many leaps in terms of quality, but I think like people want the style of the art to change. And from what I've seen of the series, it it doesn't come to me as that dissimilar from something recent like um, The Dragon Prince, which like is a bit more polished, but also is produced by like DreamWorks or something like that. Or sorry, it's not DreamWorks, but it's it's like a big studio that probably can afford that. For what it's worth, I know you have positive follow-up to this, but for what it's worth for The Dragon Prince, I saw the trailer. I'm like, that animation looks so terrible. I won't watch this no matter how good it is. <laughs> yeah. The second season wow. improved, but like if you were put off by the first season, it's like it's hard to yeah. hard to come back from that. So. Yeah. In terms of I mean, in terms of Ruby though, it's I guess it's possible that part of the problem is that at the end of volume two, I think it was, their lead animator like left I don't know if they left Rooster Teeth or they just left the team. And the same thing apparently happened at like the end of volume three or four. So I mean it's it seems like there's probably a core team there but that's not the whole team that's sticking around through the seasons. So I can see that making the change that apparently some, some watchers want very difficult. And because it's not, (laughs) because it's not being delivered and rooster teeth is all about the community guys, the fans, you know, it kind of makes sense. People are hating on it for that. I think they are in an unenviable position. There was this article I read rooster teeth. Ruby made it more than just a dude network. And in it, there's this quote in it says, I think everybody expected the show to change. We were going to do what we always sought to do, which was tell a cool story and have fun while doing it. But you can only imagine the pressure that came with that. If you're outside us to do that, and your first couple of volumes are like loosely building a world and having some kind of plots, but not like really detailed or heavy, then you're going to get screwed when it gets popular. Because I'm not saying they don't have any plans. They probably do. But that means that like your nice lighthearted plans get thrown out the window because you have a million voices that all want different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that the data that we have is limited and not a hundred percent accurate, but I can imagine that if I had most of my fans being entitled dude bros, then maybe I would also have a hard time because everyone would nitpick literally any decision that I made. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's me projecting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to my mind. What makes that so difficult is just that, I mean, sure, that, that one fan survey, mostly guys, mostly late teens, mid-20s, sure. But, I mean, that article that you just cited just makes me think that, you know, it's probably more teenagers that are watching it. Maybe maybe they're getting into it, like, now or just a couple of years ago, so they were catching up and whatnot. But, like, I mean, I guess, I guess dude bros aren't the only ones with a sense of entitlement. They're number one. They are with a with a bullet. They are just a blanket statement to people posting on internet forums. This show didn't do the thing I thought of is bad criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even explain how much I've seen of that between Game of Thrones and Endgame. <laughs> Reading threads about that, and it sounds like that's probably going on a little bit here as well. It sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, that that wasn't the only complaint I found, you know, in terms of 
it's not progressing the way I want it to progress. Uh, some people did also have a problem with the pacing of the plot, how uh, how it seemed like the original creator, Monty Ohm, was really, really good at making awesome CG animated fight scenes. And so like the fight scenes in Ruby are incredible. They're aesthetically just amazing. That was, in my own research, it seemed to be maybe the number one reason why people loved the series so much. But it seemed like some of the, the people who weren't, you know, 100% committed or 100% into Ruby loved those fight scenes, but then kind of felt like, well, the plot is just sort of this, you know, nondescript thing that's linking them together. Yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, and maybe this is, maybe this is the underlying problem. I'm sure there's no shortage of Ruby fanfic, fan art, fan works, yes. and so on. Oh yeah. But I wonder if the people that are making these criticisms are not doing that because usually, and this also is something that came up with, um, my reading about Endgame is that there's a lot of opportunity to fix what you want to write fix it fic. Yep. And just like I didn't like this, but that's okay because I made it better. Yeah. But I feel like maybe the problem is that people don't understand that they can do that. Well, it kind of it kind of goes back to something. I'm sure we discussed it at some point. It's sort of a general thing, so it could have been in any episode. <laughs> but uh, just this sort of very general idea that. Um, I feel like we've talked about it a few times where male fans tend to be more curative. Female fans tend to be more transformative. So if, if the most vocal part of the Ruby fandom is male, then yeah, the people complaining have probably never, never considered writing a fanfic or making up a fan comic, or maybe, maybe if they're animators trying their hand at animating a little, little fix it short. Part of that is probably because it's like, man, that's a lot of work. Why doesn't somebody else do it for me? Why don't they just, like you were saying, Jesus, like, why didn't they just do the thing that I wanted them to do? <laughs> it's so easy. Why didn't they just think of that? Of course. <laughs> and that's not like a, a fair criticism, but it's like, you, you can write your own. You can do yeah. whatever you want. So my famous last words from last week were, does the fandom care that it's a web series and not a television show? And it doesn't seem to matter because we're talking about a bunch of young people <laughs> who are just on the internet all the time and probably don't even have cable. No, I, I don't have cable either. But no, that's it, that's what makes it so accessible because it's on YouTube. Uh, it's 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 available for everyone free. You don't have to you don't have to go through any kind of service or anything to get it. You can buy DVDs if you want. Yeah. If you want to col- yeah. if you want to collect it, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. But it's entirely optional. I believe it's also on on Netflix and Crunchyroll. You can yeah you can get it via there, but you don't have to. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I think uh, it being a web series is part of what helped it. Um, disseminate so easily uh, and, and have so many people see it and I think your expectations are different when you see a series um, that's on YouTube as opposed to on television and hence hence why the animation style like, works so well I think. Right, because when you go in expecting red versus blue and you don't, and you don't get Game of Thrones you're not <laughs> surprised. <laughs> yes. My famous last words were uh, how influential is the art style and drawing people in and are there folks who still watch it despite the animation style and uh, i know the implicit answer to the second half is yeah there's probably people who still watch it despite not having a big fondness for the animation because there are people who clearly hate it and keep watching (laughs) it Uh, but i couldn't find a definitive answer to the first part which is how influential is the art style i think that more than the art style, as we've talked about, is is that connection to the community, that connection to Rooster Teeth, 
And in that that survey that will be in the show notes, one of the questions was, when did you start watching or like join the Rooster Teeth community? And for a lot of folks, it's at least until like 2012. So they've already got like a large group of people interested. I was going to say, just by, just by dint of the fact that it's the same people. Yeah. So I think like the art style is is a factor for drawing people in who have never seen anything Rooster Teeth. But I don't think it's like the part drawing people in. I think it's the fans that draw people in after like the, the second it's like the Rooster Teeth fans drawing in new fans and like the cosplay and the fan art. Yeah. More so than like, is it anime or not? But I couldn't find anything, so I'll have to just keep digging someday. Speaking again of whether or not it's anime, my famous last words were all about it looks like anime, but it's Western produced, so originally the voices were in English. But there's also a Japanese dub. Do fans like the Japanese dub better? The answer? Probably a handful, but it seemed like because the Japanese dub came out later, one of the main reasons why a lot of people who prefer subs often say they prefer subs applies to the English dub very confusingly. In that, in general, this the general consensus appears to be that fans prefer the English dub of the show because it's it's how maybe how the author intended it to be. Or it's how they have sort of established the characters sounding in their heads. And it, it seemed like even those fans who'd preferred the English dub, you know, do give it up for the uh, professional Japanese voice actors in that uh, they do apparently, you know, a better job with some characters, but then other characters are just too high or too low pitched or, you know, not quite, you know, cute enough or whatever, or too many autorifics, et cetera, et cetera. But then there were also um, totally separate from any sort of voice acting concerns because it, as far as I understand, the Japanese dub of the show actually aired on Japanese TV. Um, certain parts of episodes, certain bits here and there would be cut out so that it would fit the Japanese TV format. And I, I guess because I feel like the episodes got longer as the volumes went on, but the first few volumes have like 12, 13 minute episodes from what I remember of watching one of them. So it's probable that they were cut down to like fit 10 minute slots, but that's totally a guess. And so the fans aren't quite so uh, keen on that. Early episodes were quite short. First season, some episodes are like five minutes long. Yeah, those episodes are probably totally airing in, in their entirety, totally uncut. Holy crap. And then in the latest season, they go up to like 27 minutes. Wow. Oh, dang. Netflix rules. I'm going to jump in with this. I, I picked this topic. Full disclosure. I wanted to know more about Ruby fans. Uh, Secretly, because I know people who would I think would be great to have on the show to ask about Ruby, but I wanted to do some of the research first. But I think the problem that I had going into the research with this was I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't fit the puzzle pieces together. In fact, when I did some of the research, I had like a visceral negative reaction to what I was seeing in the fans. Ooh. And so I'm like, like with Transformers, I feel like all I'm getting is noise and I haven't found the signal. Interesting. I can see why people enjoy the media as it is, 
but I don't have a good sense of what the fans are like, and I would like to know more. Will will I go and eventually watch the rest of Ruby? Probably. I'm going to have to convince somebody else to watch the first couple seasons with me, and I think, much like with you and the Dragon Prince G, it might be a hard sell for anyone that I know, because <laughs> the animation isn't super polished. It's not what you're expecting. I'll probably get back into Ruby at some point, at least to see where it goes. Yeah, so the animation is like is like an interesting. It's the first thing you notice, obviously. And initially, I was like, "Oh, this is what it is." But like, I, like after watching the first episode, I was like, "Okay, I get it. It's it's its own thing," and uh, I'm I'm sort of on board for it. And that's that's what it looks like, and I'm okay with that. So some people just you know make sure they watch the entire episode. Maybe they'll uh, they'll find their way through it. Okay. Um, and yeah, like the first episode is like twelve minutes or something. That's very approachable. Um, I'll definitely watch like a couple more and we'll see how long it goes. The fact that it's on YouTube is very nice, uh, easily accessible anywhere. And yeah, yeah I'm not, I'm not expecting anything groundbreaking, but it's like, you know, it's fun to have a bunch of characters <laughs> at, at some kind of school interact in some kind of way as they grow their powers and, and are categorized on various, based on various criteria. I'm interested in seeing a little bit more. Um, it sounds like I'm not super interested in like diving deep into forums and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I have my fill of uh, of of, re- of researching stuff that I watch on forums, but uh, yeah, I'll probably I'll probably check in a bit more Ruby. Well, I guess that's a good old three for three. Because initially, I will admit, you know, seeing little clips here and there, my impression of Ruby, even after the fir- watching through the first episode, was it feels like a video game cutscene, and I want to play it. Not watch it. If you're listening to and this I, on you know, admittedly, May you could do that. Ruby, you should Ruby, stop Ruby listening clips, to this podcast now right now and, and go check out the live stream but for the cure, which sitting you can find on it, at livestreamforthecure.com. Uh, or I mean, you can hear a little bit more about it from I'm, our good friends. I'm also not expecting a whole lot out of the series. You know, it sounds like maybe stick around for the the cool fight scenes more than the shocking plot twists. But I'm willing to give it a few more episodes willing to see where it goes willing to see maybe at least what volume one brings to the table and maybe it'll go on from there but i'm also going to check out a little bit more ruby and also because it's on youtube and that makes it really easy to watch funnily enough see i had the exact same reaction i was like yeah oh this is like a video game cutscene. thank god yeah. i don't have to play it oh man i was the opposite i wanted to play it <laughs> where's the game attached to this so let me sit back and enjoy the ride. <laughs> Speaking of enjoying the ride, we've had a ride of over 100 episodes here at Fanthropological, and you can find them all at Fanthropological.com or the podcatcher of your choice. If you're downloading it in a podcatcher, if you're subscribed, meaning you get a brand new episode every single Friday, uh, would you please leave a rating and review for us as that helps people find out what we are doing at Fanthropological. If you want to uh, get in touch with uh, the podcast, you can do that at Anthropological on Facebook and at Anthropologic on Twitter. And if you want to know what the three of us are up to, the next cast, uh, you can find us at the next cast uh, pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, yeah, just type at the next cast and we should pop right up as well as the nextcast.com, which will lead you to all the other stuff that we do. If you are listening to this the day that this episode is released, that is, if you are listening to this on May. If you're listening to this on May 17th, 
you should stop listening to this podcast right now and go check out the live stream for the cure, which you can find at livestreamforthecure.com. Uh, or you can hear a little bit more about it from our good friends, the Epic Film Guys. Justin, can you believe it's almost time? Time for what? The 2019 live stream for the cure. This is our third year hosting this amazing event with every single cent going toward cancer research. The Cancer Research Institute funds research into immunotherapy to create a future immune to all forms of cancer. And this amazing nonprofit organization is rated over 92% by CharityNavigator.org and puts 88 cents of every dollar toward cancer research. Last year, thanks to an amazing team of collaborators, fans, supporters, and listeners, we raised over $5,000 in 30 hours on the air. And this year, with your help, we're going for our biggest goal yet. Tune in May 17th to the 19th on twitch.tv slash Epic Film Guys for 40 hours of amazing content as we try to reach $7,500. For more information or to find out how you can become a part of the event, please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference. And if they didn't convince you, then... Uh, stay tuned because that's right. It's our favorite part of the episode. It's time for famous last words where we say something about a future topic before we've done any of the research. And we have a doozy because as I understand it, Z, you have selected our next topic and it is Beyblade. So gentlemen, what are your famous last words about the fans, about the media of Beyblade? Yeah. Yeah. Now we've got to let it rip. I see you're uh, quoting our, our good friend, Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> How important are the, like, like, cause it's like it, the, the, the anime, right? And then there's these spinning top toys, which are not a new invention. <laughs> but battle like, tops, sir. Yeah. Yeah. They're battle tops, of course. But like, I want to know like how much is how much of the how much is focused on the battle tops and how much on the anime? Fifty fifty? Is it ninety ten? I want to know, and this is mostly thinking about the the timing of Beyblade because there were a number of different shows that came out at that time that were all very clearly intended to sell toys. Yeah, I'm gonna get the timing a little bit off, but you've got Yu Gi Oh, which was a children's card game. You've got. Battle Beatemon, which was about a little thing where you shoot stuff, like with little <laughs> balls and whatnot. But also, you had Metabots, yeah. which was a show about super fighting robots. <laughs> and that show is dead, and I was going to a wedding appointment, and when we brought up anime, the wedding consultant was talking about how their child was a fan of Beyblade, and I was like, is that still going on? <laughs> So I want to know, one, is Beyblade still going on? <laughs> and two, if it is, why? <laughs> there are so many cooler th- you can You have animation. You can do anything. Why are we doing Battletops? <laughs> and if, if it's literally still Battletops, what, what are the innovations in the Battletop arena? I think I have five words for, a five-word answer for you, T. Buy our playsets and toys. <laughs> My famous last words. Because of the battletop angle, because the toys seem to be 
as popular, maybe more popular than whatever anime may or may not even still be a thing. I very simply want to know if there is a world champion Beyblader, who is the world champion Beyblader? What? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Okay. There's some layers here that I'm, I'm kind of leaving buried in the question, but assuming that there are tournaments and assuming that those tournaments aren't just, you know, a bunch of people getting together in like a church basement somewhere on a Saturday morning, whatever, um, for their, for their local Beyblade league, but assuming that these tournaments are bigger or get bigger, you know, Oh, I won regionals. Now I'm going for nationals. And oh man, it's the it's the, the Northern Hemisphere division coming up now. And then, oh my God, the worlds. What I want to know is, I guess, basically a two parter. Is there a world championship tournament for Beyblades? And two, if so, who is the current world champion Beyblader? How do you get good at Beyblading? <laughs> I could I, say the same thing about ping pong and other <laughs> sports, but ping pong no ping pong makes sense. It's yeah. like but Beyblade is like, how are you are you good at flipping a coin? <laughs> I mean, there could be more to it. There could be there could, could be, be angles. I mean, I remember what little I I saw of the show. You know, there's a certain construction going into the Beyblade. There's like a, a a bit that's kind of like a washer, more or less. And if, if that's really sturdy, maybe yours is harder to knock down. I think there's a, a little plot point in the in the show where the main character's um, wind-up wand thing was like longer to build up more speed or something. I think there was a plot point where one of the tops danced on top of the other tops. So <laughs> I have a feeling that's how next week's episode is going to go. That being said, the only thing that remains to say is thank you, everybody, very much for listening. And until next time, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, everybody. The character? Yeah. The author is dead. Oh, man. You can do what you like. Oh. <laughs> okay, I'm not... Yeah, uh, I know. Ah. It's very hard in this You know what? Let's instance. talk about Frankenstein and pretend that the author isn't dead. <laughs> <laughs> is there another way to... To phrase that in is there another no, I, word that i'm pretty sure that's what the two of you always say when i'm trying to remember how smart people talk that's that's like yeah, a punchy that's... punchy way to do it i guess uh authorial intent is meaningless you got you have to you've had so many more words and it's not as it's full of shock value so the author is dead it's just, just what, what, uh, what the go-to is it's just what smart people say